Kronos, a techno-thriller in ten episodes, written by William Hearn, narrated by the author. Episode 1. Phone Call. Chapter 1. Tuesday. Through the fog of deep sleep, a noise gradually registers on my subconscious. It's a ringing tone, urgent, the sound of a telephone. I sit up and squint at the time displayed on my phone band, lying on the bedside table. It's 2.40am. More importantly, though, it's not the source of the disturbance. The sound must be coming from the landline in the flat, I realise. I had a phone line put in three years ago when I moved in, mostly at my parents' insistence. I've never used it since. Hardly anyone has the number. I pull myself up from the bed and move into the living room. Through the room's floor-to-ceiling windows, I can see the nighttime lights of central London. I really ought to get round to putting up curtains sometime. I hunt around for the phone amidst the room's clutter. I know that it's here somewhere, buried underneath the detritus of several years of bachelor living. The phone continues to ring. Whoever's calling seems exceptionally patient in waiting for me to answer. This had better not be some offshore call centre wanting to sell me insurance. I finally locate the phone, but only after starting at the wall socket and following the cable all the way to the handset. I answer the phone. Hello? I manage to say. A pause. Then I hear a faint female voice at the other end. Tom, is that you? Yes, I answer. Who is this? My throat is dry and the words come out as a series of rasps. It's Phaser, the voice says. You know, Max's wife. She pauses again. It's about Max, she says. I don't know who else to ask. Please help. Her voice sounds small, distant. Our entire conversation lasts no more than two minutes. After we hang up, I return to the bedroom and go over to the table. I pick up the earpiece lying beside my phone band and pop it into my ear. Hey, Iris, I say. Iris responds immediately. Yes, Mr. Jenkins, she replies. I like my digital assistant's formal. Book me a plane flight to San Francisco for this morning, I command. Direct. No connecting flights. Open return date. Iris sets to work, and within a couple seconds, a seat has been booked for me on the 10 a.m. flight from Heathrow. I then start packing some gear for the trip and making other preparations. All plans for further sleep are put aside. So just like that, I've committed to travelling five and a half thousand miles, return date unknown. What's that, dear reader? You think me a bit impulsive? Well, what would you do if you had just been told that your best friend had disappeared without trace? Chapter 2 Tuesday afternoon, en route to San Francisco the Boeing jet banks and changes direction, rousing me from slumber. Peering through the cabin window, I can see that we've made land and are now crossing the North American continent. I'm an enthusiastic cloud spotter, and so always try to book window seats on flights. The clouds are looking particularly magnificent today. To the north of the plain, I spy a couple of giant cumulonimbus, towering cathedrals of white and grey, lit up by the rays of the sun. They're bad news for the poor sods who happen to be underneath them. At this time of year, they're most likely to be suffering a sustained snowstorm. However, for those of us who happen to be cruising at 30,000 feet, the clouds are a majestic sight. I'm travelling light. Just carry on luggage, nothing checked into the hold. Years of business travel have taught me that the single best way of avoiding problems during air travel is to never, ever check any luggage in. Apart from a change of clothes and a bag of toiletries, all I have in my bag is my laptop computer and a few associated cables and other items. 
Wrapped around my left wrist is my band. This is my latest tech gadget, and I've quickly come to depend on it. It's the first wrist device that can realistically replace a smartphone rather than just act as a complement. Launched earlier this year by a certain company out of Cupertino, the band has black and gold styling, a combination of liquid metal and high-grade polymer plastic that allows it to pass as a stylish, albeit slightly chunky, piece of jewellery. A small monochrome always-on display shows the time, along with any messages that Iris deems worthy of my immediate attention. Iris is my personal digital assistant. I interact with my band mostly by talking to her. Digital assistants have come a long way in the past decade. For one thing, Iris is programmed to only respond to my voice. The era of being able to play pranks by standing close to a friend and commanding their agent software to send an embarrassing message to a loved one is well and truly over. Every morning, Iris wakes me with a personalised daily briefing. This starts with her reading out a summary of my schedule for the coming day, followed by the weather forecast and a summary of any important emails that have arrived in my inbox overnight. She concludes with major news headlines from around the world. I unwrap the band from my wrist to reveal on the underside a touch-enabled, high-resolution flexi-LED screen measuring approximately 20 centimetres long and 6 centimetres wide. I lay it flat on my tray table. On this screen, I can read emails, watch movies, play games, surf the web, or anything else that would normally be done by a smartphone or tablet. A bistable metal spring embedded in the device and running its full length ensures that it stays flat when I straighten it. The design is uncommon enough that I can enjoy the look on the faces of passers-by as I seemingly break the device by slapping it hard against my forearm in order to get it to wrap securely around my wrist. Lodged comfortably in my right ear is the companion earpiece. This allows Iris to interact with me discreetly without disturbing those around me. The earpiece's power requirements are so low that it doesn't have a battery. Instead, it uses a graphene-based thermoelectric generator, powering itself off the temperature differential between my body and the ambient air. As long as the air temperature stays below 28 degrees Celsius, the generator can provide enough juice to power the earpiece. The earpiece has several microphones built into it. Iris is pretty good at hearing me even in noisy situations. If she struggles to understand me, I can always raise my wrist to my mouth and speak into the band's microphone. This is guaranteed to ensure that she hears what I'm saying, but does have the unfortunate side effect of making me look like a secret service agent. And of course, if I want to listen to music, I just have to pop a second earpiece into my other ear and Iris automatically switches to stereo mode. It's good for playing games as well. Not that I get much time for that these days. With the band laid flat in front of me, I launch my email client. Phaser has sent me a lengthy message detailing everything about Max's disappearance and her actions so far. As I go through the notes from her, I can see that she's been exceptionally thorough. I am quickly able to build up a timeline of the events so far. Max disappeared some three days ago, going out on the Friday evening, saying only that he had some people to see. Some hours later, Faser called his mobile, wondering where he was, only to hear his phone ringing from their bedroom. Beside his phone was his wallet, with all his bank and credit cards still inside. With no immediate way of reaching Max, Faser waited, and waited, and waited. No sign of Max. By Saturday lunchtime, Faser was getting worried. She reported his disappearance to the police, and they've been looking into it, but with no result so far. Faser's been out looking for him every day, but nobody seems to have seen him. After two days of fruitless searching and feeling increasingly desperate, she decided to turn to me. I have left my boss a voicemail to say that I need to take some time off urgently for personal reasons, and that I'll be back 
in touch at the start of next week. I have a large surplus of holiday time accrued, the result of having worked the past two Christmases, so I have plenty of banked holiday time to use up. I'm sure he'll manage without me for a couple of days. The jet makes another course change. The pilot comes on the tannoy, announcing that there's turbulence ahead. Instinctively, my hand goes to the buckle of my seatbelt, checking that it's properly fastened. Satisfied, I return my attention to my band. Technology has fascinated me ever since my parents bought a computer when I was just six years old. Although I was the youngest child, it was I who was most entranced by what the computer could do and how it worked. While my sister and brother used the computer to play games and write up their homework, I wanted to do and understand much more. My parents couldn't answer any of my questions, so I joined a local computer club in Guildford in order to meet people who could. I learned my first programming language there, Scratch. I was a fast learner, especially once I discovered that the internet was a treasure trove of information on everything to do with computing. By the age of 11, I had mastered a range of programming languages far ahead of any of my classmates at school, or the teachers for that matter. I pestered my parents into allowing me to attend a secondary school that specialised in the sciences and maths, despite it being on the far side of Guildford from our home. It shouldn't come as a surprise that when it was time to go to university, I chose to study computer science. I applied to a number of the top universities in London. Getting accepted to my preferred one was tough, but I won through in the end. It was at university that I met Max. We quickly became good friends. As well as studying for the same degree, we shared many of the same outside interests, especially books and movies. We shared a flat from the second year onwards. Max was brilliant. I mean off-the-scale brilliant. While I and the vast majority of the students in the CS class had to work damn hard to master all of the material Max sailed through. He was top of the class in every single exam. Yet one of the most surprising things about Max was his humility. He might have been brilliant, but he didn't boast about it or make others feel inferior. He was patient and good at explaining even the most abstract of concepts. Max and I both graduated near the top of the class. Well, I was the one near the top of the class. Max was, not surprisingly, at the top. From there, our paths diverged. I joined an investment firm in the city, working in its IT division. Financial trading these days is all about speed. Anything we can do to reduce our response time to market events helps the company make money. My job, as I like to joke, involves battling the speed of light. Any enhancement that shaves microseconds off the time it takes for our systems to get market information, or the time that they take to react to it, gives us a competitive advantage. Once, investment firms had floors packed with type A personality traders screaming into phones to make deals. They're all gone now. Rather than have one trader execute tens of trades in an hour, our computer systems can execute orders of magnitude more and can work round the clock. The individual profit margin on each trade might be small, but it sure adds up when scaled to billions of trades a day. My job involves working with some of the largest, fastest computer equipment on the planet, running some very clever algorithms. It's fun at times, no question. But the tolerance for mistakes is zero. Management remembers all too well the glitches in the automated trading software a decade or so ago that led to massive stock sales and near-calamitous drops in the stock indices. Every minute of mistrading cost the company upwards of a million pounds in lost profit opportunity, so I'm expected to fix any issue within minutes. I'm on call 24 by 7. There's a lot of stress in my job, but the pay is good. Very good. So, all in all, life's going pretty well. I have a nice apartment with a fantastic view in the centre of London. 
I get to travel regularly as part of the job, visiting the company's secure data centers that are scattered across the world. My boss is due to retire in a year or two, and senior management has hinted more than once that I'm first in line to take over. Max's career followed a different path. He'd always wanted to live in the USA, and his high university marks meant that he was easily able to find a Silicon Valley firm willing to sponsor his green card application. He moved out to California within three months of graduating. He worked for a number of companies in the Valley, always refusing to work for any of the tech giants, preferring instead to work at smaller companies whose principles and ethics mirrored his own. Then he met Faser. She was a business student, studying for a master's degree and living in downtown San Francisco. She was a second-generation immigrant whose family had come over from Pakistan 40 years ago. Max mentioned meeting her in passing in one of his emails to me and that they'd been out to see movie together. The next thing I knew, they were engaged and living together. I was the best man at their wedding 12 months later. To be perfectly honest, I missed Max's company when he moved to the States. Even though I could still talk to him regularly, I missed not having him about, not being able to go out for a meal or go to the latest horror film together. And I have to admit that those feelings got worse when he announced that he was getting married. I felt that he was moving into the next phase of his life, new country, wife, etc., and leaving me behind. I noticed how it always seemed to be me making the calls to him, never the reverse. About six months ago, Max changed jobs, accepting a new position at DORG, short for Digital Online Rights Group, the Internet Rights Policy Group based in downtown San Francisco. Max had been following the organization's activities for a couple of years, particularly their work championing reform of the copyright and software patent laws, and seemed to be genuinely in awe of them. Every time we talked since, he mentioned how much he was enjoying working there. And then, without any warning, he vanished. Well, almost without warning. Deep in my inbox is an email from Max, sent to me just ten days ago, It's short, just two sentences. He said that he wanted my advice, he didn't say about what, and asked me to give him a call when I had a free moment. I'd seen the email at the time that it had come in, but had never quite found the time to reply to him, much less call him. Now, I can't shake the feeling that Max's disappearance is somehow connected to that email, and... Far worse, my failure to respond to it. Chapter 3 Tuesday evening, San Francisco International The jet lands right on schedule in San Francisco. As I'm travelling light, I'm able to breeze through immigration and customs. Faser is there to meet me outside of arrivals. I spot her before she sees me. She is an attractive woman in her mid-twenties, about five foot six. She has shoulder-length straight black hair, which she's wearing with the currently fashionable brow-length bangs. Faser's wearing jeans and a stylish wrap-around yellow blouse, which curves around her belly. No, make that her extended belly. Yes, she's pregnant, at least six months gone by my admittedly layman estimate. This is a surprise to me. Max hasn't said anything about impending fatherhood in any of our conversations. Faser's eyes have dark rims around them and are sunk low in their sockets. It doesn't look as if she slept in days. Faser catches sight of me and she smiles, then rushes forward. I head towards her. We meet and she hugs me tightly. Thank you for coming, she says, still holding me closely. I've been out of my mind worrying about Max. We head out of the terminal and take the BART back towards the city. The San Franciscan evening rush hour is still a couple of hours away and the carriages are relatively empty of passengers. 
Outside, it's a mild November afternoon, the sun bright but low in the cloudless sky. I'm so glad you're here, Faser says to me as we speed through the Californian landscape. I've done everything I can think of to find Max. I need someone to help me search. You've known Max far longer than I have. Perhaps you can come up with some new ideas about where he's gone. And I thought you could help me get into his email. That might give some clues. Absolutely, I say. Whatever I can do to help, you've got it. Faser smiles again and reaches out to touch my arm. Thank you, she whispers. Who else have you been in touch with? I ask. Well, I've been to the police, of course, Faser says. They took down all Max's details, and I gave them several recent photos of him. But that was all last Saturday. I've heard nothing since. I also checked with Dorg. Apparently Max was at work as usual on Friday. No one has heard from him since. Have you told other family members? I inquire. No, Faser says, hesitating. I've... I've told no one else. I don't get on that well with Max's parents. If I called them to say that Max was missing, they'd probably say that it was all my fault. I nod. I recall that relations at the wedding between Faser and her in-laws had been formal, even frosty at times. At the time, I'd put it down to being due to the stress that surrounds any big event, but clearly things haven't improved since. Faser points at her bump. Max and I decided not to tell them about the baby until after the birth, she says. Getting in touch with them now would lead to lots of difficult questions that I just don't have time to answer right now. I can't let anything distract me from finding Max. That seems a little puzzling, but I decide to let it pass for now. What about your parents? The rest of your family, I ask. My father passed away last year, and my mother's too ill to travel right now, Faser says. I don't want to worry her about this right now. I'm beginning to understand just how isolated Faser is feeling. No wonder she reached out to me for help. We leave the BART at the Montgomery Street stop. Downtown San Francisco isn't much changed from my last visit eight months ago. Everything is just dustier. It's been another long, dry summer in California. We walked a short distance to Max and Faser's small apartment, high above Sutter Street. The flat is sparsely but tastefully furnished. Faser is due all the credit for the stylish furnishings. If it were left to Max, he'd probably settle for a mattress on the floor, a fridge and little else. There's little space for clutter, as the flat is tiny. It's made up of a bedroom, a combined kitchen stroke living room and a bathroom. I drop my bag in the corner. Right, what would you like me to help with first, I ask. Faser thinks for a moment. Could you help me access Max's online stuff, his email? I'd really like to know if he's still reading his emails. And who he's been communicating with. You got it, I say. I look around. There's a small wooden desk in the living room. I see a power cord for a laptop lying beside it. I point at it. I presume that's for Max's laptop, I ask Faser. Faser nods. Yes, she says. He had it with him when he disappeared. I ponder this for a second. Max took his laptop computer with him, but not his phone or wallet. Odd. May I see his phone, I ask. Perhaps I can learn something from his smartphone. Of course, Faser says. She disappears into the bedroom for a moment. When she emerges, she's carrying Max's phone. She passes it to me. Max's phone is a make and model that's completely unfamiliar to me. I pride myself on keeping up to date with all the latest smartphones. It has a fairly standard large touchscreen on the front, together with a button in the bottom right corner. So far, so normal. What's unusual about it is that the thing is encased in a thick, grey, industrial plastic. 
I get a strong impression that the phone is a prototype. I turn it over and look at the back. There are no markings anywhere on the phone. There's not even a manufacturer's logo. Very strange. Do you know where Max got this phone? I ask. Faser shakes her head. I'm not sure, she says. I think he got it when he joined Dorg, but I'm not sure. I tap the button on the front and the screen springs to life. The battery gauge shows a full charge. I've been keeping it plugged into a power adapter, says Faser. I'm hoping that Max might call it and I don't want to miss the call. The phone prompts me for a four-digit passcode. Any idea what Max's passcode is? I ask Faser. Again, she shakes her head. No, I don't, she says. We don't share devices much. I have my own tablet and laptop computer. I try entering a couple simple passcodes. One, two, three, four, zero, 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 just to see if they work. Neither of them succeed. Faser stifles a yawn with her hand. She looks flat out exhausted. Excuse me, she says. If you don't mind, I'm going to have a lie down for a while. Baby and I need to rest. There's much I want to ask her, but she's clearly tired. My questions can wait. By all means, I say. Faser goes into the bedroom and closes the door. I return my attention to the smartphone. I turn on the lamp on the desk and hold the phone close to it. I angle the phone carefully so that the light reflects off its screen. I'm looking to see whether any parts of the screen have more fingerprint grease on them than others. Assuming Max has set up the security on his smartphone to require the passcode to be entered every time he wakes it up, he's going to be entering the passcode many times a day. I should be able to get some idea of the digits in the passcode by looking for the regions of the screen that are most greasy. Sure enough, a couple of areas look worse than the others. Lining them up with a passcode keypad suggests that Max's passcode contains the numbers 3, 7, 8 and 9. But what order do these numbers come in? There are 24 potential combinations. I start with a few of the possible combinations, but all are rejected. After four failed attempts, a message appears on the screen. Six failed attempts, four remaining before lockout. Damn, Max must have configured his phone to lock out after the entry of ten incorrect passcodes. I have twenty potential combinations left and only four remaining attempts. Trying each of the combinations is no longer an option. I'm going to have to be smart about this. I get up and wander over to the window. I ponder what to do now. I could use my remaining four attempts, but if I fail, then I'd be left with a locked-out device. I would then have to enter Max's master password in order to regain access, and that is likely to be much longer and therefore harder to guess. The digits 3, 7, 8 and 9 keep swirling around in my head. There's something familiar about them, but I can't quite recall what. I pace back and forth in the room, trying to tease a memory in my mind out into the open. Then I remember. Max had a bike when he was at university. Bloody dangerous it was too. He nearly got run over by London traffic on multiple occasions. But he insisted on continuing to use it as it was good for the planet. Anyway, he had a combination lock for it. One time, during a bus strike, I'd borrowed the bike and Max had told me the code to the lock. It was 8379. Hardly daring to breathe, I tap the code into the phone. The screen glows blue and, for a second, I think I have access. Then a message appears on the screen. Fingerprint reauthentication required. An outline around the power button starts to glow red, and I realise that the button doubles as a fingerprint reader. Double damn. The thing is expecting Max's fingerprint. Whilst I think about what to do next, I start to look through the drawers of Max's desk to see if I can find anything that might help me access the phone. I find the usual desk clutter, 
paper clips and stationery, plus a few bank statements. Nothing that gives me any insight. In the lowest drawer, amongst a stack of papers, I find a photocopy of a photograph. The image quality isn't good, but I can make out seven men, all casually dressed, sitting around a restaurant table. They're all holding up drinks glasses, as if about to make a toast or celebrate something. I recognise none of the faces. Max isn't one of the seven men. Perhaps he was the one who took the photograph. Someone has drawn rings around the heads of two of the men in red ink. Why? Whilst I ponder what to do next, I get up and make myself a cup of coffee. I can feel my body beginning to flag. Although I slept a bit on the flight over, I'm still basically on UK time, where it's now after 2am. As I sip my coffee, I do a few stretches of my back and my legs. The caffeine and the exercise helps to perk me up. My attention is drawn back to Max's phone. A message is now displayed on the screen. Mjolnir feature activated. Below the text is a running countdown clock. 30, 29, 28, 27. I feel my heart beginning to race. I look around the screen but see no way of cancelling whatever is about to happen. 22, 21, 20, 19. I hold down on the power button, hoping that I can shut the thing down in order to buy me some more time. No such joy. The button appears to have been deactivated. The countdown continues. 9, 8, 7. In desperation, I press each of my fingers in turn against the reader, hoping that somehow it can be fooled into thinking that Max is logging in. 3, 2, 1, 0. The phone screen fades to black, stays blank for a couple of seconds. Then it returns to life, displaying a welcome message and a prompt for a user ID and password. The phone has been wiped. Crap. I put the phone down and rub my eyes. From somewhere in the depths of my memory, I recall that Mjolnir was the hammer of the Norse god Thor. I tap my earpiece. Iris, tell me about Mjolnir, I say quietly, trying not to disturb Phaser in the next room. I'm hoping that Iris won't be thrown by my lousy Nordic pronunciation. Iris does manage to understand my instruction. Two seconds later, she is showing me the Wikipedia page for Mjolnir on the screen of my band. By reading the entry, I learned that Mjolnir, a mighty weapon, could only be wielded by Thor. Furthermore, in the comic books, it was conditioned to transform into a harmless wooden stick if it was out of Thor's possession for more than a certain length of time. This was the inspiration for a smartphone security application of the same name that wipes the phone if the user hasn't logged in for a certain length of time. Glancing at the time, I can see that it's now four days since Max left the apartment. Max must have configured the software to wipe after 96 hours. I rub my forehead. Max has certainly been taking extreme security precautions with his phone. I know lots of people who have their passcodes set up to lock the phone after a series of failed attempts, but this is ridiculous. Why would Max go to such lengths to protect the data on his phone? What was he storing on there? As I ponder this, the door of the bedroom opens and Phaser appears. Despite the relative shortness of her rest, she looks better for it. Any luck getting in? she asks. I shake my head sheepishly. I'm afraid not, I say. The phone just wiped itself without warning. I don't think it's anything I did. Even to my ears, my words sound pathetic. Here I am, the great tech whiz, just flown in and already technology is wiping itself around me. Faiza clasps a hand to her mouth. Oh no! She gasps. That might have been my only link to Max. She starts pacing the room in frustration. She then turns on me angrily. 
I was holding on to the phone, keeping it charged just in case Max should call, she shouts at me. Now that's impossible. I know, and I'm sorry, I say, but I don't think it was my fault. Judging from the screen messages, Max had special software running on his phone that caused it to wipe after a certain time of inactivity. It's been exactly 96 hours, four days, since he disappeared. He must have configured the software to wipe the phone after this amount of time. Phaser takes a deep breath and calms down. You're right, I'm sure. Sorry for getting mad at you, she says. Thanks, I say, relieved that she's willing to absolve me of blame. Do you have any idea why Max would protect his phone so securely? Why was he so afraid of it being stolen? I have no idea, says Faser. I don't know what he had on there that would be so secret. I turn and stare out of the window, thinking. Faser decides to change the subject. I was planning on going and getting something to eat. Want to join me? she asks. I'd eaten well on the flight over, but figure that she could do with some company right now. Sure, I say. Faser brightens. Great, she says. I know this excellent place on O'Farrell. It's only a couple of blocks from here. We pull on our jackets and head downstairs. Outside, it's long since dark. The temperature has cooled from the warm autumnal weather that welcomed me when I landed just a few hours earlier. As we walk, I decide to try a little small talk. When's the baby due? I ask. The beginning of February, replies Faser. And how's the pregnancy going? I inquire. Fine, so far, Faser says. I got tired at first and slept a lot, but that passed after a couple of months. My feet hurt at times, but Max is such a sweetheart. He'd wash my feet and give me a foot massage and I'd feel much better. Her voice drops away and she stopped walking. I... I just can't imagine what's happened to him. I just want him back. For me and the baby. I put my hand sympathetically on her shoulder. I know, I say. We're going to find him. That's a promise. We resume our walk and soon reach the restaurant. One of the waiters greets us, bowing low. Good evening, madam. Good evening, sir. Table for two? We nod. Do you want to sit in the meat or vegetarian section? Phaser's a vegetarian, so, as a courtesy to her, I agree to go veggie tonight. The waiter shows us to a quiet table in the vegetarian section of the restaurant. The place is relatively empty, with only a few other tables occupied. I dimly recall time from my early childhood when restaurants and other places were segregated along smoking and non-smoking lines. Hard as it is now to imagine, there was once a time when people could smoke in public, virtually anywhere. Looking back now, it all seems rather barbaric but then so much about the 20th century was. The restaurant is a modern fusion affair, serving foods from many parts of the Indian subcontinent. When the waiter arrives to take our order, I request a spicy lentil curry, some naan bread as a side dish, and a bottle of kingfisher beer to wash it down. Faiza orders a vegetable korma and plain rice, plus a glass of tap water. The years-long drought in California means that restaurants now only serve tap water on request. And the increasingly strict water rationing means that they charge for it. The waiter brings our drinks, along with some papadoms and sauces. Faiza munches on a piece of papadon. It's great that you're here, she says between mouthfuls. Looking for Max on my own has been tough. Where did you look? I ask. Where haven't I looked? Faser replies. I checked all the local hospitals just in case that Max had been admitted to one of them in a coma. I've been to all the restaurants and other places that Max and I like to hang out at. I've put up posters all around the centre of San Francisco. You've been most thorough, I say sympathetically. You know what the worst thing is? Faser continues. It's the urge to be constantly on the lookout. 
Wherever I am, I keep looking out of the windows, just in case Max walks by. It's exhausting. I nod. And when I'm out walking in the street, Visor says, I keep stopping complete strangers, just because they happen to look like Max from behind. The waiter brings our main dishes. The lentil curry is excellent, especially accompanied by the beer. I find that I'm unexpectedly hungry. We start to eat. How long can you stay? Faisal asks between mouthfuls of vegetable. As long as you need me to, I reassure her. I've got lots of untaken leave banked up. My boss has been nagging me forever to use them. Thank you, says Faisal, reaching out to clutch my hand across the table. I'm so glad you're here. We fall silent as food takes over our attention. As I eat, I mull over the incident with Max's phone. What on earth was stored on the phone that would merit so much security? We finish our meals. By now, it's past ten o'clock and my head is beginning to spin from the long day. The beer isn't helping my alertness either. Faiza sees me flagging. Shall we call it a night? She asks. I guess so, I say. I've been up for nearly twenty-four hours. Of course, Faiza says. We'll head back to the flat and I'll make up the sofa bed for you. We ask the waiter for the bill. When it arrives, Faiza reaches out and touches my arm. I've got this, she says insistently. She pulls her smartphone out of her bag and says to the waiter, I'll pay by cube. She taps her phone against the side of the waiter's tablet and the meal is instantly paid for. Somewhere in the depths of the internet, a ledger has two transactions added to it. One decrementing Faiza's account for the cost of the meal, and another incrementing the restaurant's account by the same amount. We head back towards Sutter Street. As I walk, Faisa says, Do you know the worst thing about all this? I find myself already using the past tense to describe Max. Max was, and Max did, rather than Max is, and Max does. It's like my subconscious is telling me that he isn't coming back. You mustn't think like that, I say to her. We have to stay positive. I stop and turn to face her. I'll make a pact with you, I say. If you catch me referring to Max in the past tense, tell me. I'll do the same for you. Deal? Deal, Faiza says firmly. We arrive back at the apartment building. Once in the flat, Faiza finds me some sheets, a pillow and a blanket for the sofa bed. I make the bed quickly. Within seconds of putting my head on the pillow, I'm asleep. Chapter 4 Eleven Years Previously No, no, no! thundered Dr. Fry. He threw his whiteboard marker pen to the floor, and, for a moment, I thought he was going to bring his foot down on it. Self-control, however, re-established itself just in time. Fry straightened up, took a deep breath, and turned away from the board. The pen would live to write another day. To say that this first-term computer science tutorial was not going well would be a severe understatement. Dr. Fry, as new to teaching as we first-year students were to university life, was making the classic mistake of taking our inability to comprehend as a personal slight against his teaching abilities. The topic for the tutorial, and the source of Fry's exasperations, was recursion. As an abstract concept, recursion sounds straightforward. Solving a problem by writing code that calls itself in order to solve smaller instances of the same problem. However, the implementation details can befuddle even expert programmers. And understanding recursion is one thing, trying to explain it to a group of uncomprehending beginners quite another, as Dr. Fry was learning all too painfully. Fry was on his third explanation attempt. This time, he decided to use the example of fractal graphics. This was a sensible enough decision, as fractals, with their patterns within patterns, are well suited for drawing using recursive code. However, Fry had then made life much harder for himself by choosing a fractal graphic shape 
that relied on two recursive functions. Both of these functions called each other as well as themselves, an approach known as mutual recursion. Each time either of the two functions were run, a further four recursive function calls would be generated, and each function was called many, many times. Keeping a grip on all of this is tricky, even when using paper and pencil to keep track of the recursive layers. I was someone who felt that they understood recursion pretty well, having used it in a number of school projects, and even I was struggling. Every time I tried to step through the code, I kept getting stuck in infinite loops. The other students in the tutorial were faring even worse, hence Dr. Fry's ire. There was a knock on the door. Come in, barked Dr. Fry, irritated at the interruption. A tall, gangly youth entered the room. He had dark, curly, bushy hair, which looked as if it hadn't been washed in quite a while. I vaguely recognised him. I recalled spotting him at one of our lectures at the start of term. That was six weeks ago. I couldn't remember having seen him since. The youth sat down in the empty seat beside me. Ah, good afternoon, Mr. Whitting, said Fry. He glanced down at his register. I see that this is the first tutorial you've bothered to attend. We're honoured that you have decided to grace us with your presence. The youth mumbled an apology, but that didn't placate Fry. He gestured at the code that he'd written up on the board for the fractal graphic. Max, perhaps you could draw the graphical output, Fry asked. He had obviously decided to resort to the centuries-old technique of punishment through humiliation in front of peers. Max grumbled something under his breath, slowly got to his feet, and walked over to the whiteboard. He studied the Python code for all of ten seconds, then started drawing on the board. His pen moved back and forth, following the execution steps of the algorithm. I marvelled at how he was keeping track in his head of all the mutual recursion. After a few minutes, Max stepped back from the board and revealed the results of his labours. I think this is what you wanted, said Max to Fry, completely unfazed at Fry's attempt to embarrass him. The code draws a Sierpinski curve, doesn't it? Fry, surprised that Max had finished already, went over to the whiteboard. He scanned Max's drawing. Yes, that's right, he conceded sounding disappointed that Max had solved his problem so effortlessly. Well done. Max gestured at the function's definitions for turning left and right. I think you got the turns the wrong way round, he said. He switched the plus 90 and minus 90 degree operations around in the functions. Radian calculations go anticlockwise, not clockwise, he reminded Fry. He spoke matter-of-factly, without malice looking Fry straight in the eye. Fry reddened, embarrassed at having made a basic mathematical mistake in his code. Yes, that's quite right. Good spot, he said hurriedly. Thank you for, um, enhancing the code. I had to fight hard to suppress a snigger. Max sat back down beside me. Fry, still embarrassed by his error, realised he needed to regain control of the situation. Right, everyone, he said. Try drawing the pattern out for yourselves. See if you get the same result as Max. The class set to work. One of the other students put his hand up to ask a question, and Fry moved over to his desk. Nice work, I said to Max. Fry was sure you were going to fail. Thanks, said Max. Recursion is one of my favourite programming techniques. Is it? I said. I try to avoid it. It's so easy to make mistakes. For the computer to get caught in an infinite loop. Yes, but at least the code's clean enough that the mistakes can be spotted easily, countered Max. Simple code is almost always better code, easier to correct, maintain and enhance. Fry coughed loudly in our direction his less than subtle hint that we had better things to do than talk. Maybe, I admitted, lowering my voice, 
but the performance hit from all that manipulation of the stack can be huge, not to mention the memory it consumes. Give me an iterative approach any day. I heard Fry's voice boom out towards us. Gentlemen, will you concentrate on the exercise in front of you, in silence? This sounds like a good beer discussion, Max whispered to me. How about we continue this down the union after we're done here? Deal, I said. I'll buy the first round. Chapter 5 Wednesday Morning First thing after breakfast, Fazer and I trek over to SFPD's central station on Vallejo Street. The station is decidedly run down. What with spending cuts, the force's budget was cut by 20% last year, and ever-rising pension bills, there isn't much money left over for building maintenance, I guess. We have an appointment with Inspector Lister, from the Juvenile and Family Services Division. Lister, mid-fifties, is a big, powerfully built man. I certainly wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of the law with him around. He listens to us sympathetically and seems pleased when I mention that I've travelled over from the UK to support Fazer. Despite his sympathy, or perhaps because of it, Fazer wants to see tangible signs of progress in the case. I logged my husband's disappearance with you on Saturday afternoon, she says to him. You must have found something out since then. Lister picks up a tablet from his desk and flicks through a few pages. I'm afraid not, he says. Your husband's name and description have been logged on our missing persons database. The details have been passed to all police forces in the state. No reported sightings yet. Faisa is clearly frustrated by the lack of progress. Is that all? She says, her voice rising a couple of notches in both pitch and volume. Shouldn't you have more to show by now? Lister, veteran police officer that he is, doesn't rise to the bait. I'm sorry, he says, his voice taking on an even more soothing tone. I know you want your husband found. We've uploaded his image to our CCTV software and it's looking for any images of people that would fit his description. We've got cameras throughout the city. If any matches do come up, you will be notified immediately, I promise you. That's it, Faser says incredulously. Lister's attempt at placation are having little effect on her. Indeed, she's beginning to get angry. I paid the administration fee for reporting Max's disappearance. What do you have to show for my $250? SFPD, like many police forces across the US and beyond, has introduced usage fees over the past year and a half in order to report a crime, or, in Fazer's case, a disappearance, the victim has to pay a fee up front. The SFPD claims that the fee was introduced in order to cut down on reports of spurious or trivial incidents. The fee is refunded on successful criminal prosecution. However, many people suspect that the fee is an attempt to make up the shortfall on funding. Lister remains cool. I know you'd like us to have every member of the foresight looking for him, but we can't do that, he says. We've got 10,000 plus cameras throughout San Francisco. If your husband moves anywhere within the city's boundaries, our software will spot him. I guarantee it. Faser still looks unhappy. Lister continues. Your husband probably needs just a little time to himself right now. You said in your statement that the argument between you grew heated before he left. Maybe he's gone hiking or flown to Vegas or something. It'll blow over. Give him to the weekend and he'll be most likely back, all by himself. Lister rises from his seat. He really is a big man. He towers over Faser by nearly two feet. I promise I'll let you know the moment we've learned something, he says passing me a copy of his business card. He glances at his watch. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go. I was due on the other side of town ten minutes ago. Faser says nothing. We take our leave of the inspector and head out to the police station. I say nothing, but inside I'm fuming. 
As soon as we're around the corner, out of view of the station, I turn to face Faser. What argument? I demand. Faser reddens. Max and I did have an argument on the Friday before he left, she says. We were discussing whether we could afford new or second-hand gear for the baby. It got a bit heated. I think back to the couple of bank statements of Max's that I'd seen in the drawers of the desk the night before. None of them showed large balances, and the latest one had shown a substantial overdraft. I can't imagine that Max's job pays that well. It's easy to see how money could become tight and be a source of friction. All that being true, I'm still frustrated that Faser hadn't seen fit to volunteer this potentially critical piece of information. Look, I say, I'm with you all the way on this, come what may, but I can't help you if you're holding stuff back from me. Faser nods. I'm sorry, she says. I should have told you about our fight. I just didn't think that it was relevant. Max wouldn't just walk out on me, or the baby. You need to tell me everything, I say, still mad at her. The big stuff and the little. Any of it could make the difference between us finding Max and... Us not, says Faser, completing my sentence for me. I'm sorry, she says, her eyes cast down in shame and embarrassment. It won't happen again. I will tell you everything. I promise. Thank you, I say, nodding. We resume our walk and head back towards Sutter Street. Although I've accepted Faze's apology, I'm still uneasy. Is there anything else that she is withholding from me? While she might feel embarrassed about having to share the details of the life that she and Max shared, the more I know, the better I can help. Back in the apartment, we figure out the plan of action for the rest of the day. With Max's phone wiped, I decide to turn my attention to his email account. Like most of us, he uses a popular cloud-based email service. Can I guess his password and gain access? Faser decides to go out and put up some more posters. We agree to meet up later on at a local coffee shop to review progress. As Faser gets ready to head out, she pauses. It may be nothing, but I've just remembered a weird conversation I overheard of Max's. It was a month or two back, she says. Really? I say. With whom? I don't know, Faser replies. Max was talking on his mobile when I came back into the flat. The conversation ended pretty soon after I entered the room. He seemed to be talking about writing. About pens and how to test them. Pens, I say, rubbing my chin. That doesn't make much sense. Max knows many things about many subjects, but I didn't think he was into calligraphy. Hang on a moment. Did he, by any chance, use the phrase pen testing? I ask excitedly. Faser pauses to think for a second, then she brightens. Yes, she exclaims. That's just what Max said. How did you know? Pen testing is short for penetration testing, I say. It's one way of verifying a computer's security. People try to break into the system and test its defences. Is it legal? Faser asks. It depends, I answer. Yes, if it's done with the owner's permission. No, if it isn't. Faser pales. I can see that she's worried that Max may have gotten caught up in something illegal. I pat her arm consolingly. I'm sure that whatever Max was involved in, it was legitimate. Max wouldn't knowingly break the law. Faser's expression doesn't lift much. I hope you're right, she says. I gesture towards my laptop. I have the login screen to Max's email provider open in my web browser. If Max has been doing some security work, I should find some evidence of it in his email. Even perhaps who he was talking with that night you overheard him. Yes, hopefully, Pfizer says. She pulls her bag over her shoulder and heads to the door. Call me if you guess his password, she says as she leaves the flat. 
I turn my attention to my computer, but I'm still mulling over the conversation that Faser overheard. Security testing doesn't sound like part of Max's day job at Dorg. Could he be moonlighting as a security analyst? He's more than smart enough to do that kind of work, and the extra money would certainly come in handy with the baby on the way. But back to more immediate matters. I push the speculation from my mind and concentrate on trying to guess his email password. I type in a few obvious passwords. Password, monkey123, and the like. But without any success. I didn't expect them to work. Max is far too experienced to choose such easy-to-guess passwords. But I have to start somewhere. I pull out a pad of paper and start to make a list of possible passwords that Max might have used. I think of all the possible inspirations that Max might have used for his choice of password. Names of his family members, places he's lived or worked, pets and favourite books, films, TV shows. I know that if Max has secured his email properly, I'm going to have little chance of guessing his password. However, I'm hoping that Max, like most of us, has gotten a little bit lazy and sacrificed some security in the interests of convenience. Instead of a password made up of random characters, I'm hoping that he's chosen a password that is both easy to remember and easy to type. Soon, I have pages of potential passwords written down. I start to enter them one by one into the email login screen. Chapter 6. Wednesday afternoon, 4pm. Five hours later, I'm still entering passwords. It's a mind-numbingly slow, boring activity, especially as I've taken to trying each password three times, just in case I happen to mistype it once or twice. I'm still only a quarter of the way through my list. Somewhat surprisingly, Max's email provider doesn't seem to be at all concerned about repeated failed login attempts. Every so often, a helpful note pops up on the screen, giving me a URL to click on in case I've forgotten my password. But apart from that, it allows me to continue making password attempts. I'm starting to realise why tabloid journalists find it so easy to hack the email accounts belonging to celebrities. Password cracking is nothing like what is shown in the Hollywood movies. The heroes there have it easy. They just have to guess a character or two in the password correctly, and the system will lock those in, allowing them to focus on the remaining unknown characters. Thus, password cracking can be done in minutes. In real life, password cracking is nothing like that. A proper password system will respond with either a yes or a no answer. Nothing more. It certainly won't tell you how many of the characters you've entered are correct. A random sequence of, say, 12 alphanumeric characters with both upper and lowercase letters and a few shifted characters thrown in for good measure is going to have something like 2 billion trillion combinations. I could enter passwords until the end of the universe and still not find the right one. To G my spirits up, I decamped early and headed to a coffee shop further along Sutter Street. It's a small independent outlet with only a couple of tables, but it's a hangout for true connoisseurs of coffee. Rumour has it that startup companies from all over the city come here to have the shop grind their beans using the shop's state-of-the-art Malconig coffee grinder. Whatever the truth to the rumour, the shop's coffee is excellent. I'm still largely on UK time, so regular infusions of hot, highly caffeinated beverages are doing much to keep me going. I'm immersed in my screen when Faser enters the shop. She drops down into the seat across from me with a loud sigh. She looks tired. Any luck with the password? she asks. I shake my head. None. But I still have a lot of potential passwords to try. I say, holding up the list that I've compiled. Hopefully one of them will work. Faisa frowns. I suspect she's wondering just how long this password cracking could take. I don't want to dishearten her by telling her that I could be typing passwords until doomsday. At the moment, it's the only potential lead we have, so it's worth focusing on. 
I'm going as quick as I can, I reassure her. But it has to be done carefully. I'd hate to have the right password but type it in wrong. Faser nods and decides to change the subject. I've spent the afternoon in the mission, she says. I put up a lot more posters and talked with people, but no one has seen Max. How much money might Max have had on him, I ask. You said that he left his wallet behind with all his credit cards. Faser shrugs. I don't really know, she answers. Maybe a hundred dollars, maybe less. Max isn't one for carrying large quantities of cash around. He'd usually pay for low-value things with his phone. Faser pulls herself out of her seat. I'm going to get myself a coffee. Want anything? She asks. I shrug and point to my half-full cup. I'm on my third coffee already, I say. Much more and my eyeballs will be popping out of my head. Faser heads over to the counter to order from the barista. I return my attention to my laptop and continue entering passwords. Suddenly, there's a loud crash. I look up and see that Faser has collapsed by the counter, knocking over a container of cutlery as she fell. I race over to her. Are you okay? I ask. I think so, says Faser, blinking. I felt dizzy for a moment. And then the room spun. The female barista comes round the corner and the two of us help Faser onto her feet. I fainted all the time when I was expecting my first child, she tells Faser. Honey, you've got to be careful. Take your time when you're getting up from a chair. Don't rush. We go back to our table. Instantly, I know something has changed. My laptop. It's gone, I shout. I frantically look around the coffee shop, but there's no sign of it. I race outside and scan up and down the pavement for someone running away or acting suspicious in some way. But all I see are regular San Fran citizens going about their normal daily business. Faser joins me on the pavement. Do you see anyone? She asks. I shake my head. Whoever it was, they got away, I say. Faser sinks into one of the coffee shop's outdoor chairs. I'm sorry, she says. I feel that this is all my fault. I sit down beside her. No, it's not, I say, trying to console her. It's just really bad luck. Thefts happen. Besides, I've got everything backed up. I've lost nothing important. Faser doesn't look reassured. I don't know what else to say. We sit silently, side by side. The sun is setting behind the buildings to the west. Before long it will be dark. Suddenly... Faser sits up. Max keeps backups too, she exclaims. That was episode one of Kronos, written by William Hearn and narrated by the author. For more information about this novel, including how to obtain an ebook or printed hardback copy, please visit the website at kronosthenovel.com. This audio recording is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License.